Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Have you ever watched two people get into an argument and you're just watching it happen? Uh, maybe you're watching, maybe you're invited to dinner and the couple you've invited to dinner starts having an argument in front of you. And it's not just a playful argument, it actually kind of gets quite serious and you're there left with your spouse or your significant other and you're just watching the disagreement unfold, you're watching the argument unfold and you're wondering, is it going to resolve? Is there going to be a resolution? What's the one person going to say to the other that ends this disagreement? How are they going to respond? How is this disagreement going to settle? That's where we are in Acts chapter 15. We're going verse by verse through the book of Acts, and we find ourselves in Acts chapter 15 and verse 22. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to pull them out and look at it, uh, look at the scriptures with us. If you have your Bible app, you can go to the events portion on the menu, and you can follow along the notes there. Last week, we saw that there was a disagreement that became potentially divisive among the church because the Jewish followers were concerned that the Gentile followers weren't coming to God in the way that they would like. And so the Jewish people began to preach that there was a requirement for the Gentiles, the outsiders, in order to come to God. And that was this. They needed to be circumcised. They needed to come to Jesus. They needed to come to God through the law of Moses. And so today is kind of the resolution of that disagreement. We kind of ended with this portion where they, uh, they met, they debated, they came to some conclusions, but now the church would have to respond to these conclusions, and we kind of see the resolution take place today. What does it mean for someone to be justified before God? Well, the Jewish people taught this, that you would be justified or made right before God by keeping the law. For hundreds of years, for generations, this is how they were justified or made right before God. And so when the gospel began to spread in the early chapters of Acts to people that were outside the Jewish faith, the Jews get, became very concerned about Gentiles coming to Jesus but not going through the law. We kind of used the metaphor of our church and we said that they were coming in the side doors and the Jewish people felt very strongly that for these Gentiles to come to Jesus, they needed to do so through the law. They needed to be circumcised and they needed to become under the law. The church, Paul and Barnabas and others who were starting churches in these communities, were preaching that we can only be justified or made right before God by relying on what Jesus had done, not what we do. So Paul, a Pharisee, had written these words. We're going to start in Galatians chapter 2. It's going to be on your screen. Galatians 2 verse 16 says this. This is Paul speaking. He says, we know that a person is made right with God, justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be right with God, justified because of our faith in Christ. The next verse, or the the rest of the verse says this on the next screen. Our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. Here's the last sentence uh, that kind of sums up this thought from Paul. For no one will be ever made right with God by obeying the law. 
So no one's ever made right by obeying the law. So let me uh, bring us up to speed. What has happened? Well, the church has shared the gospel. They've gone to communities outside just Jewish communities. And in doing so, Gentiles or outsiders started coming and becoming followers of Jesus Christ. They started getting saved. The Jewish people were very concerned, so they started preaching to them, saying, you must be circumcised to be a Christian. You must be circumcised to follow Jesus. Paul and Barnabas heard about this. They discussed. They debated. They traveled to Jerusalem to discuss with the elders there, the church leadership. They discussed and debated with the Pharisees. Peter gives his statement on what he's witnessed and what he's seen. Barnabas and Paul both share on what they've witnessed. And then James speaks and they come to this conclusion that they can't make it more difficult for anyone to come to Christ. It's already hard enough for people to come to Jesus. James basically sums up and says, we are not going to make it any more difficult for people to come to Jesus. So what would they say? Well, how would they respond? How would the church respond? We pick it up in verse 22. It says this, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. Look at the first phrase there. That it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. This is the same group of individuals that are in chapter 15, verse 1, where they had a strong disagreement. So a lot of credit has to go to these individuals who allow themselves to be convinced and persuaded by the evidence from scriptures and the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. They all agreed, and that's miraculous. If you've ever been a part of a church and you've ever had a discussion where we try to come to a consensus on something, it is a miracle for this church in Acts 15 to all agree on the same thing. Now, we can admire the certain men of Acts because they boldly stated their conviction, even though it was wrong, but we should be even more admirable of them that they stated their position, they were wrong, they were presented with evidence, they were presented from the Holy Spirit, uh, some convictions, and because of that, they actually changed their mind. When was the last time you changed your mind about something? Right? It is a difficult thing to do. It's a difficult thing to do on something uh, inconsequential, but it's very difficult when it becomes something that's really consequential in your life, when it's a core tenant or a core value in your life, when it's a core belief in your life, to simply change your mind. And so we see this amazing display of these individuals who had teachable spirits through a disagreement. <clears throat> the Jerusalem Council then wisely sent two members of its own community with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch, where the whole dispute arose. Let's look at verse 23. <clears throat> they sent with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles, in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greeting. Why are these places important? This is where um, among other places, this is where the tension between Jewish followers and Gentile followers was starting to rise. And so the letter went to them first. We go to verse 24. The letter continues. Since we have heard the same persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. 
James voiced the decision of the council, and there was unity behind the decision. And this is amazing evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit that in this uh, huge, consequential, uh, potentially divisive issue, they stated one another's opinion. They uh, resolved on what the evidence was from the scriptures they had. They relied on the Holy Spirit, and they came to an agreement. It's a beautiful model of church leadership in display. Verse 26, he's describing these men, Barnabas and Paul, and he says, These men have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. So in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, we don't want to lay any more burdens than this we're about to say. Verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they weren't adding anything to um, their requirements. Verse 29 is a summation of what we read at the end of verse 20 and 21 in the previous uh, narrative. What they're saying is this, the Gentiles should consider themselves under no obligation to the rituals of Judaism, except where love demands deference. And where love demands deference, if there's sensitivity to another brother or sister in Christ, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, here are some things that you should ascribe to so that you don't offend your Gentile brother, you don't offend your Jewish brother. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not to any conformity to any of the law. Verse 30, so when they sent off, they were sent down to Antioch, having gathered in the congregation together. They delivered the letter, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So this whole time, there's this group of believers that are earnestly waiting for the decision that the elders and the apostles would make. They're waiting for their decision because we have groups of Gentiles that have formed churches and they're starting to operate and function as a church. They haven't been circumcised. They haven't put priority on the law. They have simply come together as Paul and Barnabas taught them to function as a church. And now they hear that the Jewish brothers are adding this requirement to salvation. They're adding this another step to take uh, so you got to be saved. You got to be uh, baptized. And by the way, you also should be circumcised. And here's the law. And now you can follow Jesus. So this group of followers that are outside of this discussion are waiting for the decision by the apostles and the elders. And they come and the end of verse 31 says this, when they read the letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They were relieved to see that the principle of grace had been preserved. We read on in the narrative, verse 32, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers in many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Verse 34, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord and many others also. So these two served well in Antioch as visiting ministers from Jerusalem. So Judas returns, they left Silas in Antioch. Um, the situation is handled pretty well, it looks like. The brethren are strengthened. The word of God continues. Let's read on verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. What does this sound like to you? 
Let's read that again. Let us return, visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. What's that look like? What's that sound like? Checking up on people? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is the indication that Paul's second missionary trip is about to happen. So when we go on mission trip, what ends up happening? Well, we usually have a group of people, and they go. This last trip was to Mexico City, and they go. And part of what we're doing is to check up uh, to see where we've proclaimed the Lord and see how it's going. This is a missions trip. So we go, and then what's the other purpose? You go and you help and you strengthen the leaders that are there. You get your hands dirty. You figure out what they're doing. And then you get to come back home. And just like the team did uh, last summer, they come back home and they tell us what they saw and observed. This is a missions trip. Uh, for those of you who read the annual report in my letter, uh, I get a chance in the next few weeks, I'm going to go to Guatemala in the third week of February. Uh, on a missions trip to help teach in a seminary down there. This is a trip that was scheduled in April of 2020. Remember what happened in April of 2020? Nothing happened in April of 2020. So this was a trip that was scheduled in April of 2020, and we had to cancel it because of the pandemic. And then the chance came for me to go uh, this next time. And so uh, so in a few weeks, I'm going to do exactly what this is. We're going to go to a work in Guatemala. I'm going to help teach. But we're also going to check up to see how the... Uh, work is going. Paul, in the book of Acts, we're going to uncover three missionary journeys. This is, the, uh, this is kind of the inception of the second missionary journey. We'll follow that into about uh, Acts 18, if I remember right. But Paul was the kind of person was not content just to plant churches and to move on. The model of his ministry was he would plant churches he would stay there for a while. He would leave it to some church leadership. Then he would go somewhere else. And then at some point, he would try to return back to those churches in order to make sure they were nurtured, they were growing in the faith. Buckle up, there's another disagreement coming. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Verse 38. But Paul, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So John Mark had previously left a missionary journey uh, in Acts chapter 13. If you go back and you read Acts chapter 13, it kind of seems less than favorable, the circumstances that he left. This probably indicates that Paul was kind of unwilling to trust him in a future adventure. Verse 39 Let's read, there rose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. So earlier in this chapter, in verse 1, there was a dispute. Uh, we've seen it described as no small dissension, which means there was a big dissension. Uh, there was a much dispute, and now we see the words sharp disagreement. There's disagreement. Now, typically in my life history, when there is a sharp contention between two parties, I'm usually right and the other person's wrong. I mean, I don't know how else to tell you that. That's just usually the way it plays out. No, you know what happens when there's a sharp disagreement. Who's at fault? This is life, isn't it? This is life. When there's a sharp disagreement, usually there's usually fault in both parties. The verse continues, Barnabas took Paul with him, or I'm sorry, Barnabas took Mark with him, 
and sailed away to Cyprus. Verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Silica, strengthening the churches. Now, Barnabas was John Mark's cousin, so I think that influences Barnabas' choice here a little bit. Uh, Barnabas had such an outgoing, uh, encouraging... Uh, remember when Paul first became saved in Acts chapter, um, whatever it is, 8, 9, um, and he goes away for a while, and then um, uh, he's introduced to other church leaders, and, and no one wanted to associate with Paul. Barnabas was one of the first ones who did so, um, kind of uh, encouraging him, mentoring him. So it stands to reason that Barnabas would also do that here. Paul goes with Silas. Barnabas goes with Mark. Uh, it's hard to know if their personal relationship was strained for a prolonged period of time. Um, and it's, and, it's, and it's, it's unclear, according to the way Luke wrote about it, uh, who has more at fault. There's no doubt that God uses this division, and we'll see that here in a minute. But this is never, never to be casually used uh, as an excuse for carnal division. Um, God can always redeem our circumstances. He can always redeem our relationships. But it does not mean we get to be selfish in our disagreements. Uh, my understanding is either Paul or Barnabas, or most likely both, had fault in this disagreement. And they had to get this right with God and with one another. The beautiful thing is we do get a little snippet of closure here. Later, Paul came to minister with John Mark and to value his contributions and to the work of God. So there might be a little bit on John Mark and his immaturity on what it meant back in Acts chapter 13. We don't know. But Silas definitely becomes an important part of Paul's team in doing the work of the ministry. So there's the narrative. There's the disagreement, right? So we've seen a few disagreements. We've seen uh, the gospel spread. Gentiles who are outsiders are now coming to Jesus. Jewish brothers like, wait, hold on. This is too much too soon. They need to be circumcised. Make a line here. They need to come under the law if they're going to come to God. Paul and Barnabas hear about it. They debate. Peter gives his input. James gives his input. And they come to this conclusion. Listen, we're not going to make it any more difficult for people to come to Jesus. That's just not what we're going to do. Um, they go on. They go visit. Paul and Barnabas get into another disagreement. And because of that disagreement, Paul takes Silas with him. Barnabas takes John Mark. They separate. Um, historically, you can, see, you can see that Barnabas's work when he left was very fruitful, as was Paul's, as we'll see. But we see all these disagreements. So I thought about how to do this uh, narrative and how to include it in, in our series and I just want to share three life lessons that come from disagreements. Three life lessons that come from disagreements. And I'm going to read a lot of different scriptures under each one of these. And then we're going to commit to which area speaks to us most today. Lesson number one is this. Humility will advance the kingdom of God. Humility will advance the kingdom of God. The word of God spread throughout the region. It's a beautiful narrative to see these men come with such strong, theological, huge concerns. They listen to one another. They debate. They discuss. They hear from the Holy Spirit. And they come to an agreement. And both of them, both parties just ex uh, displayed humility. Ephesians 4 and verse 2 says this, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with one another, 
I love this. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Philippians says it this way. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Romans 12 and verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. In other words, don't think you know it all. Humility will advance the kingdom of God. Um, some notes on humility there in your notes I, I would love to, to write down. And I forgot to include the definition. Uh, and that's my mistake when I was making the outline. But it's going to be on the screen. How do we define? All right, it's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to give it to you. Actually, it might be. It is. It is on the screen. It's not in your notes. It's on the screen. Write this down. Humility is the choice to use our resources and influences for the good of others before yourself. It's the choice to use your resources and influences for the good of others before yourself. And when we embody humility, it'll advance the kingdom of God. So the beauty of impact of humility is this. First, humility assumes the dignity of others. You know what you are doing when you exercise humility in a relationship? You are telling the other person in that relationship that they have dignity, that they have value, that they have worth. It's showing the other person in the relationship, the other party in the relationship, I'm not better than you are, I am not high and lifted up over you, but you have dignity, you have value, you have worth. Humility is also a choice. We get to choose as followers of Jesus Christ to exercise humility. It's not something that happens by accident, and it's not something that just you wake up one morning and all of a sudden you are humble. It's a choice you make to use your resources and influences for the good of others before yourself. It's the choice to assume the dignity of others. And then thirdly, humility is social. What do we mean by that? That means this, humility must be displayed in relationship with one another. If you contain it in your mind and in your heart and it never gets displayed, it's actually the opposite of humility. Because you are keeping it self-centered. Humility is social. It must be displayed by redirecting our resources or our influence for the sake of others. John Dixon said this, Humility is more about how I treat others than how I think about myself. It's more about how we treat others than how we think about ourselves. This is such a beautiful, beautifully displayed in Acts chapter 15 because there are opportunities all over this chapter for someone to hold on to their opinion, to their stance over a relationship. And yet instead what we see for the majority of the chapter is followers of Jesus Christ who have strongly held beliefs, willing to put those aside, use their resources influenced for the good of others before themselves, and you end up seeing that the kingdom of God gets advanced. And when we fail to exercise humility in our relationships, what ends up happening is this. Whatever momentum, whatever progress the kingdom of God had, it stops. 
So you know what happens in a church where, well, let's back up. Uh, What happens in a family uh, where humility is not a core value? Where pride is the core value? Where ego is the core value? Now what happens when there's a disagreement between the spouse? Spouses, husband and wife. Yeah, they, they dig in their heels, right? Uh, there's no forgiveness. Humility, uh, pride doesn't really give way for forgiveness, does it? Uh, in fact, pride gives way for keeping score, right? Listen, honey, I'm up 5-2 on arguments. I, I'm, I'm, I'm winning, right? I'm keeping track of this thing, and I've been right way more times than you've been right. And so I, th- that's, that's pride talking. That's ego. That's the opposite of what the kingdom of God is. But if you have a husband and wife who have humility as a core uh, value, what ends up happening in the relationship is when there is a disagreement, a sharp disagreement, as Acts describes it, over really important things, humility will allow the two spouses, husband and wife, to come together, have a civil discourse, right? Where there's no accusations, there's no name calling, there's none of all those things, but you get to have a civil discourse, a common conversation where you get to say, what does it look like for us to work together here? It assumes the value of the husband, it assumes the value of the spouse. It's a choice that the husband... Uh, what's the trickle-down effect of having humility as a core value between husband and wife? Well, your kids get to see that. It does not mean that your kids will definitely act it out, but there will be moments in their life that when they go back and they realize, well, how did mom and dad disagree? How do they work that out? Well, they see that core value of humility. Humility. It assumes the dignity of others. You know what happens in a church where if there's a disagreement on a team or a uh, ministry on, on what decision to make next, and if everyone in that team assumes the value and the dignity of others, if everyone makes a choice on that team to exercise humility, and if everyone actually acts out that, is social with that humility, those conversations become constructive opportunities for creativity and consensus building and for solutions. So, life lesson number one from disagreements, humility will advance the kingdom. Life lesson number two is this, the Holy Spirit is a person, not an idea, and not a feeling. The Holy Spirit is a person, not an idea or a feeling. The Holy Spirit can give you ideas, And you can feel the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit itself is a person. If you go back in the text and you look at verse 28, it says this, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So they boldly treat the Holy Spirit as one of them, a fellow counselor who unites them, the Spirit of God, as if he sat down with them in their deliberations. John 14, Jesus describes it this way. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is a person. So by way of reminder, here's some things the Holy Spirit will do in your life. He will teach you and remind you. John 14 says this, When the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. 
So the Holy Spirit teaches you and then reminds you. By the way, I think he can only remind you of things he's taught you. And he can only teach you if you show up to class. The Holy Spirit can only teach you if you're willing. The Holy Spirit can only teach you in those moments. Uh, well, let me back up. He can teach you. But you probably only learn if you show up. Have you ever gone through uh, moments in your life and you feel like, man, I have to learn this lesson again, and I have to learn this lesson again, and I have to learn this lesson again? Yeah, the Holy Spirit's probably somewhere in heaven going like this. I got to teach this person again this thing. I have to teach this person again. I have to teach this. Why? Because if we're not relying on the Holy Spirit, then there's nothing inside of us that's transforming. Uh, He teaches us. He reminds us. He also guides us. How many of you this year have to make a pretty big decision in the next 12 months? Just raise your hand. In the next 12 months, you have to make a big decision. Okay? Holy Spirit is here to guide us. John 16 says it this way. He will guide you into all truth, and he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Here's the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit guiding us. It still means we have to follow It still means that we have to move, but he will guide us. Not only that, he will convict us. John 16 says this, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Are you ever in a position where you're hearing something or listening something or watching something and all of a sudden there's this tug in your heart that says, in this moment, this is not the best place for you to be. This is not the best feeling for you to have. This is not the best image you should be looking at. This is not the best thing you should be listening to. This is not the place where you should be. This is not the conversation you should be having. This is not the person you should be around right now. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. He's guiding you. He's convicting you. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, and he prays for us. Romans 8, he helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Oh, the Holy Spirit is a person. What I love about the the vocabulary chosen in Acts 15 as Luke writes it is it fully identifies the Holy Spirit as one of them. It wasn't this idea or feeling or emotion. It says, well, according to the Holy Spirit in us, according to this person in us, this seems like the best thing that we should do. We talked about it, all of us, the apostles, uh, the elders, and the Holy Spirit. He, they count the Holy Spirit as a real and active person in their life. What would change in our hearts if we viewed the Holy Spirit as a person in our life? that's always present, there to teach us, to remind us, to guide us, to convict us, to empower us, to help us in our weakness, and to pray for us. Life lesson number three is this. Life is all about relationships. Life is all about relationships. It's interesting to me that in the course of this narrative, we see, uh, we see changes happening through these disagreements. We see changes happening with uh, the way they interact with one another, the way that they um, talk to one another, the way that they uh, go forward with one another. And at the core of all of this for them is this reminder that life is all about relationships. 
the Jews and the Gentiles had to sort out for themselves what would it look like for the church to operate healthily, uh, health, healthily, healthy, together, to function together, to move forward together when they were part of the same body, where for generations and for hundreds of years before, the Jews and Gentiles never worshiped together, and now they were going to worship together. Now they cooperatively were going to function together. It was a real life lesson for them that they realized that in this moment, if we're going to truly sacrifice all we have in, into, into this faith that we have in who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we have to prioritize our relationships. First Peter 4 says it this way, Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. John 13 says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You have any of you have friends that aren't Christians, that they don't, they don't have faith? And if you were to ask them in an honest moment, what do you think of when you think of Christians? How would you describe Christians that you've known in your life? Would you be ready for the answer? Well, Christians, I don't, I don't know what the answers would be, but I could tell you this. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing in our community that when people thought of church or when they thought of Christians, they would say, oh, yeah, those are the ones that just love one another. Yeah, when someone's going through something rough, they just show up in their life. When there's, a, when there's difficulty, they show up. Yeah, my, my Christian's a neighbor, and, and, and I just know that they love each other. They're always doing things together. They're always there for one another. They just love each other. Hebrews says it this way, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is, a Sabbath of, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here's the thing, as you surrender in your vertical relationship with Jesus, all your horizontal relationships will be empowered. I am not a prophet, nor will I make a prophecy, but I can deduct that most of us are going to go through a disagreement in the next week. And from the sounds of it, sounds like I'm pretty accurate. You're going to disagree with someone this week. You might disagree with a spouse over something inconsequential that turns into something really big. You might disagree with your teenager on, on certain decisions and habits that they're keeping. You might disagree with your boss at work. You might disagree with some coworkers. You might disagree with your pastor you might disagree with someone you're sitting with right now. Don't point. Make it obvious. You're going to disagree with someone because life is about relationships and at the core of who we are, we're broken, right? We have these areas in our life that, uh, that are hurt and are wounded, are in the process of healing. And sometimes we're in relationships and then when the disagreements come, it exasperates those wounds and the wounds get all fresh again. And even though the person in front of you may not have caused the wound, for some reason, they're intentionally just pouring salt over that wound, right? 
And all of a sudden, the wound that you experienced 10 or 12 years ago with someone completely different in your life is now being awakened with the person right in front of you. And now there's going to be this disagreement. It would be nice to have some values or uh, core beliefs on how you're going to handle disagreements. So let me encourage us this morning to be humble in that moment. To assume the dignity and the value of the person you have a disagreement with. When Libby and I got married, um, we went through premarital counseling with a trusted couple in our life. Um, and they walked us through some material and through some scripture. And one of the best pieces of marriage advice they ever gave us was this. Always assume the best of your spouse's intentions. That way when there's a disagreement or that way when they've done something that might have upset you, if you assume the spouse's intentions, what ends up happening is you're operating from a different perspective now when you have that conversation. Assume the dignity of others when you have a disagreement this week. Um, if, you're, if you have a disagreement with your boss this week at work, assume the dignity and the value and the worth of that person. You know how much that'll change your approach, your thought life? Realize that humility is a choice in the middle of your disagreement this week. You get to choose to exercise humility in that moment. And you must do so in the context of that relationship. Because if all you think about is being humble, but it never comes out of your mouth and it never comes out of your actions, guess what? You're, uh, we don't like this word, but you're living the life of a hypocrite who believes and values one thing, but lives out other values. So, let's exercise humility this week in the middle of our disagreement. Let's figure out what it looks like in our lives to recognize the Holy Spirit as a person. So, if you're in a disagreement with another follower of Jesus Christ this week, say, you know what? Can we both pray right now? Because I'm feeling tension, and I don't want to live there. And so let's invite the Holy Spirit into this relationship. You're going to shock the person you're in front of, first of all. But you're going to feel both of yourselves just calmly rely on the Holy Spirit in that relationship. And can I tell you the potential of, for creativity, for problem solving, the potential for love to be displayed, this is how we do it, is when we recognize the Holy Spirit. And when I just said to invite him into this conversation, guess what? He's been there the whole time. He's a person. He's real. So let him teach us. Let him guide us. Let him remind us. Let him convict us. Let's let him empower us and help us in our weakness. This week, when you have a disagreement, recognize the Holy Spirit is there with you in that moment, and you get to pray and acknowledge him as a person in your life. And then this week, when you're in the middle of a disagreement, because I know you will be, I will be, we all will be, recognize that the life we live out is about these relationships. And as we surrender vertically to our Heavenly Father and to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit, our, holy, our horizontal relationships will be impacted. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, as we think about these disagreements in our life, as we contemplate how they'll show up in our life, Lord, and I have no doubt they will show up in our life this week. We will have disagreements. 
Some of them are going to be really small, and Lord, some of them might be life-changing disagreements with people we love, with people we trust, with people we work for, with people we're around. Father, would you help us in the middle of our disagreement to exercise humility? Father, I pray our church would never be known for a church that looks down on people, but as a church that honestly assumes dignity and value and worth with every person we come across. May that just be one of the hallmarks of our church. Help us to make that choice this week, to simply be humble when there's a disagreement. And help us to display that humility in real and tangible ways through our conversation, through our body language, through our generosity, as we use our resources and influence for the good of others before thinking of ourselves. Holy Spirit, thank you for teaching us. Thank you for reminding us. We pray that you would guide us. Pray that you would convict us. That you would empower us. That you would help us in our weakness and provide your presence daily. Father, I pray that our church would just embrace families, mothers, fathers, spouses, children, would embrace the Holy Spirit as a person, a real person that lives within us. Father, help us to realize that in the course of our life, in the course of going to work and making money and setting ourselves up for retirement and following the playoffs and cheering on teams and buying cars and going out to dinner, that at the core of this life on earth is relationships. Help us to not sacrifice any temporary thing for the sake of a relationship, but help us to just yield our life in a way to the Holy Spirit where our relationships are just strengthened. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.